that as well. So, all right, so we're going to head through, um, we're going to continue through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. We, we had this scripture last week as well, and uh, I mentioned that I wanted to spend another week on it because, you know, this is a very, very difficult passage to preach from. This is a very difficult book to preach from. And the reason why is we have so much, so much great encouragement and um, exhortation um, but we also have a lot of warning, uh, especially as it relates <clears throat> to a people that really are not grasping a, a hold of who Jesus is quite yet. They, they know of him, they know about him, maybe some have even tasted, but they are uh, wandering off. The, the, the writer says they're drifting away, they're neglecting their salvation, and uh, he breaks it all down because they're not choosing to fully embrace the new method on how God is now communicating to human beings. And that is through only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ, his son, fully God and fully man. And our writer has taken us through the importance of this, that Jesus had to be both. And he also talks about not only the importance of Christ on who he is being God, but why he had to be fully human is because he had to stand in our place, those humans that would one day be also ascended up with Christ as rulers, even those that will rule over angels. It says, why did you make, you know, why did you make, look, why do you look at mankind and love them so much? Why do you look at us, Lord, is what the writer was basically saying when we are just, we're made lower than the angels, we're made from dirt, we're sinful. Oh, but does he have an amazing plan for the human race of, of those that believe in him are going to not only be in him positionally, but we are going to literally reign alongside of him in the next age, in the new heavens and the new earth. When we are resurrected, there's a very important, profound, significant role that you're going to play. And more important than even what you're doing now. You'll really be your real self. You're now sort of half of who you will be. We'll, we'll be who we fully are meant to be as human beings. And so it's so important that Jesus did this work. And God chose to perfect him to do this work to make him complete, to have him do everything he was supposed to do through suffering. And we talk that suffering is also something we should all expect as believers as we do this ministry, his will as well. Because for if God made us his brother, that's what it says, and we share that name with him, and he perfected his sanctification, quote-unquote sanctification, made him perfect and complete. Not that Jesus sinned, but that he could do everything he was supposed to do in his office as mediator. He did that through suffering. How much more can we expect to suffer the same way when we are sanctified? I know that doesn't really appeal to the flesh too much. But boy, does that change us more into Christ, more into his image. And does it, boy, does it make us so effective for the kingdom, as I, I don't know if I shared this with you, but um, Pastor Craig, who comes here, he sh- you know, when when you get ordained in the PCA, you get all the pastors from the whole region to come, and you have to preach to them, and you have to um, after you're done preaching, they all get to ask you questions, 
most of them will try to ask like real stuffy theological questions to see where they can grab you. But Pastor Craig always would ask the question, how have you suffered to the potential candidates? How have you suffered? He wanted to know. Because unless God puts you through a test and through a trial, you probably aren't going to grow spiritually. And so this is what we've learned so far in Hebrews. But then last week, we saw that this writer is also urgently warning these people not to make the same mistake again. What do I mean by that? These are, the, these, are, these are Hebrews, okay? Like mostly all the early church was in the very beginning. These are Hebrews. The majority were Jewish people. And the one thing that's in the mind of the Jewish person constantly as it relates to God is that he's going to rescue us again like he did before in Egypt and in Babylon and from the Assyrians. He will rescue us again. He will do this. But... They're, he's saying, you want God to rescue you again, but he did. And you're not hearing it. You're doing the same thing you did in the wilderness. Your heart is becoming hard. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as when they provoked me as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. And we talked about that last week. They provoked God by asking the question, what? Is God really among us? They did that twice, once at the beginning of the wanderings, and then we're thirsty, we're hungry. Moses struck the rock, and water came out, and they were grumbling. And 40 years later, in their very last year of the wilderness, before they went into Canaan, into the promised land, they asked and complained again. Moses strikes the rock twice, and then gets prohibited from going in there. And why why was he doing that? He wasn't trusting the Lord. He wasn't trusting that God was holy, that he would do what he said. But these people for 40 years were seeing God, saw God work, and then said, is God among us? Come on, how many times have we said that? Where's God? You see, that right there hits God right in the gut. If There's a way to analyze that in a good way. It hits him in the gut because that's all he wants from you and me. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. And when we say, ah, he's not even here with us after everything he's done, well, that really hits him right in the gut. And so while I'm going to start here with verse 7, I'm going to read through this passage again because these people were, last week that we were, were talking, as you're going to hear it in the passage, this is scary. And we talked about it last week. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Verse 7, it says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and he's referring back to this Psalm 95 is where this is taken from. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And they said, they they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath they would not enter my rest. They would not be brought into that restful peace that God shares and God gives to those who are his. They won't be able to enter into that. Verse 12, take care, my brethren. This is a very strong word of warning. Take care, be warned, even some translations say, 
that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice it's the evil heart falling away from the living God, not the living God falling away from the evil heart. But encourage one another day after day. Okay, Every day we should be encouraging one another as long as it's still called today. Meaning as long as, this, as long as we're still here. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How true is that? If sin was just honest with us, we probably wouldn't in, in, entertain it, right? If sin really showed what exactly is going to happen by partaking in it, we would run. Especially if we saw the exponent. But sin is deceitful. It's all pretty and it dresses up and it allures us in. However it wants to appeal to you, that's what it takes its shape and it, fit, it fits exactly what it is. It's deceitful. So 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. This is the only, I think, positive verse in the whole passage. But then he takes it away. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Remember, we went through all those if statements Last week, there's so many of them in the New Testament as it relates to us knowing Christ or not, to us truly believing the gospel, to us truly being saved. There's that always that if that none of us like. We're going to talk about that. But it says here, if we hold fast the beginning of our our assurance firm until the end. Again, he refers back to Psalm 95. While it is said Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. And now in verse 16, 17 and 18, he goes through these rhetorical questions to really even drive it home even more. Like you get in this, listen, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? It wasn't like they didn't see something great. They were led out of the strongest nation in the world by the most powerful army at the time. And they were led out of that miraculously by God who literally wiped them out. And now they're saying, ah, there's God among us. Verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter, not because of, well, they, you know, they missed church on Sunday too many times, or they didn't offer the right sacrifice at the right time, or they committed a sin and they never said a prayer and repented of it. No, that's not why. What did they do? They didn't enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief. It's like one of those things, what comes first? Does the unbelief come first and then we drift into sin? Or do we get into sin and then we drift more into unbelief? The answer to those is yes, both. But unbelief is the one sin that is unforgivable. You can't stand before the living God on judgment day. You can stand before him as an adulterer, You could stand before him as a fornicator, as a homosexual, as an idolater, and go down the line. And if you're covered in the blood of Christ and you've repented of those sins and you've come to Christ, all of those things are going to be forgiven. 
But if you stand before him that day, pure as all get out, never having committed any of those sins, but yet you do not believe in Jesus Christ, that is not going to be forgiven on that day. This isn't doubting. This isn't questioning God and being confused maybe about theology. This is unbelief saying, is God among me? Is he really here? Where is God? Because as soon as you start thinking like that, you will drift. And that's the first wrong turn you've made. And so all of this stuff to me begs the question then, because we see in Scripture, okay, can we lose our salvation? Well, in Scripture, we talked about last week, no, you can't lose your salvation because salvation is of the Lord. So it's not a big secret. I'm not going to hold that reveal to the end. You know that. That's how we ended last week. But the big problem is, is how do we work it, is how we interpret this that comes in and we, we, we process it as, well, shallowly, like, okay, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. But that puts the emphasis on man when you say once saved, always saved. That makes your salvation man-centered because you're saying, I am saved. I said the prayer or I did something. So therefore, God has to save me. He has to do it. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to do anything. Now, soteriologically, meaning from a salvific salvation perspective, when God chooses his person and saves that person and converts them, once that happens, that cannot be undone. Cannot be undone. However, what about this flip side of it? This world that we're in, that we're living it's hard to buy into that because of our sin nature, because of our always questioning God, always doubting ourselves, always understanding the gospel, but never truly embracing it for what it truly is as it relates to grace. And I think one of the biggest things with this is that in our modern time, everyone in this room has lived, okay, over the past few decades, obviously. And if you've been a Christian, you know as well as I do that it's not the assurance that's being sold and propagated. It's the insurance that's being sold and propagated in the church, unfortunately. What do I mean by that? The insurance against fire, fire insurance. I'll never forget one of, my, one of the first times anyone ever say, shared the gospel with me was like, hey, listen, just check it out, man. It's like insurance. Like, why wouldn't you buy insurance? It's free and you have it for the rest of your life. This is fire insurance, man. Not said it makes sense. It is scary to think of going to hell forever, but that's such a it's like a caricature of really what it's about. It's not about that. God doesn't want us to go to hell forever. He provided a savior and a sinner. But what we do is we look at Jesus as our fire insurance. My get out of hell free card. I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take. I'm going to take this right now. Where the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. The Bible warns you to make sure that you are sure. The Bible exhorts us not to sit and say, well, listen, don't worry about if you're not living a Christian life. You have assurance because God has to save you. You did say that prayer. You did acknowledge him that one time. No, it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of if, if, and, and all those if statements 
are indicative of a true, true conversion. And so this is what was happening here. This, what, what was, what's happening in our life is this, you know, this insurance mentality. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that he looks at this life that we're living here as his child. He wants us to have assurance in what his word says about salvation. But he also wants us to have that personal assurance by the way we're actually living our life. Otherwise, we make God out to be a liar. And we put him to the test. And what you sow, you will reap. Right? God will not be mocked. And so we can't, even though conceptually grace is unretractable, unmerited favor in the gospel, the blood of Christ is never retracted from somebody. That's impossible. What happens is, is that person, like it says in here, they become deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what was going on with the Hebrews. They were falling away. They were leaving the church because they weren't able to fully let go of their perception of God, of their perception of that old covenant. They're on top of it all. They're losing all of their family. They're losing all of their familial connections. They're getting kicked out of their communities. They're getting persecuted by the Romans. They're getting persecuted by the Jews. They can't even go down the street and and go to the synagogue or even trade with anybody anymore that was in the synagogue because they're excommunicated. And so this letter is to those people. And guess what they were doing? They were just saying, is this really worth it? Where is God? Okay, he sent his son. He did everything, but where is he? When's he coming back? When's he going to take the Romans off of our back? Isn't that what the Messiah was supposed to do? And so this wasn't a necessarily a particular sin that they were committing. It wasn't that they were just committing the sin of legalism or a specific sin of adultery or anything like that. They were committing the sin of literal apathy in They just didn't care. They were drifting away. Sin of unbelief. And this is what led to their faithlessness in God. It made them forget about what God actually did. We have to treat God's promises as something that are not letting us off the hook, that we don't have to do anything now. Right? Like when we buy a car warranty. Hey, I don't care what happens. It's under warranty. What ends up happening is, is you end up treating that car poorly because you're not respecting what it is. You're not respecting the fact that you're able to have such a nice car. I know this is a, a terrible analogy, but you're fa- it fails on many levels. But the thing what I'm trying to say is, is that the warranty is something that we're like, oh, we have the paperwork here. You're not going to show up in front of God and go, oh, yeah, here's my church membership. Here's the first page of my Bible the day that I accepted you. So... I want to cash in on that now, please. That's not going to happen. Jesus is going to say, who are you? I never, we, never, we never knew each other. right? And so, <clears throat> is it possible for people to fall away from Christ? Well, again, fall away from the concept of Christ? Yes. Fall away from the living Christ after they've been converted? No. What was their issue? Were they not saved? Well, here's the deal. And I'll ask this as a question. Do you think you can hear from God? Do you think that you can confess Christ from your mouth? 
Do you think you can believe even in Jesus or try Jesus and still not fully know him? Because this is where we get all messed up. We said, as soon as we talk about people that are professing Christians that are not saved, we go, well, wait a minute. They hear the word of God and they, they, they live for God, right? They do good things that they go to church. They confess, they believed, you know, they talk about Jesus. Well, guess what? The Bible says that there's going to be people like that that don't really know him. But then the pastor gets up at church and he'll start talking like that and everyone gets offended because how could you say these, ser- these things of the sermon? You know, we've been doing it, whatever. No, but this is what the job, this is why the Bible's written for us to be warned. And I'm preaching to myself as well too. Listen to what Matthew says. Jesus says in Matthew 13, you know the parable, the parable of the sower. Some seed he talks about falls on the side of the road. It misses its target and the birds come up and they eat it. Now this parable about Jesus tossing out, about the, uh, the sower tossing out seed, is about the kingdom of God and about the people of Israel hearing the words about the kingdom, but still misinterpreting it, still thinking on their own lines. Very easily applicable to salvation, because it's the same thing. To enter the kingdom, it's to be saved. So that first fell on the road, the birds eat it. The other seed, the other knowledge about Jesus got thrown out, but that fell on rocky places. There was a little bit of soil, enough to make it really get excited and spring up. But then because there was no root, sun comes out, boom, it fries it. Then there's the other one that's thrown in the thorny ground, then they, the, the weeds and the thorns come up and choke it. And then, of course, there's the good soil where the seed lands on, and then the seed multiplies 30, 60, and 100-fold. So it's all different results, but it's God doing it all. And Jesus talks about this. So to answer the question, can somebody hear the word, maybe even believe the word for a short period of time, maybe even act like a Christian and not be one? Yes. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. Was that person saved and now unsaved? No, the seed never took root. What about that's the one that was, you know, the one was on the roadside, right? And then the one whom the seed was sown on rocky places, he hears the word, he receives it with joy, but has no root. It's only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises, he immediately falls away. That person had something going on with God there for a while until it got bad and then he bailed out. Was he saved and then unsaved? No, he was never saved in the first place. And then you have the one that the seed was sown among thorns, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked out the word. Again, he wasn't unsaved after that word began to get choked. He was never saved in the first place. Why? Because it didn't fall on good soil. Now, you know better than me, most of you here, if you know gardening, what happens with a seed, right? It dies, it goes into the ground, and then stuff happens, and it becomes part of the ground, right? And it becomes this, 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 this tree or whatever grows out of that. It becomes a part of it, and that becomes real. So the answer to this question, this dilemma of are we saved, are we not saved, has nothing to do with God. He is faithful. He is saving every single person that he goes out to save. 
But because we live here in the midst of evil, deceitfulness, of sin, and all these other things, we can be fooled. So the only way to know is to be like that seed that took root. And that seed that took root, I would like to say it, it unionized with that dirt and that it became one with the ground. And in order to bring it apart, it really needs to be forced out. And so that's where you have to ask yourself if you want assurance. Assurance of your salvation is going to be, are you unionized? Are you in union with Christ? Union with Christ. All of our salvation, all, everything that has to do with it, has to do with being united with Christ. All of the sins that we, cre- that we commit are so sinful and so terrible because we are unified with Christ. So when, you, when the Bible says, when you pair yourself up with somebody that's not your husband or wife and you have sexual relations, you, the Bible says that you are one in spirit with Christ and you're bringing that spirit into that, in this, in this case it was a prostitute, with that prostitute. That's why it's so bad, because of your union with Christ. It's the glue that holds your salvation together. Your union with Christ is why you are justified. It is why God has granted you faith, because of the faithful one you're unified with. He sanctifies you because of your union with Christ, because he's one with you by living in you with the Holy Spirit. So it's our sanctification and ultimately our glorification, which has already begun, but will be fully realized when we're risen from the dead. We'll be fully unified with Christ. And the scriptures talk about this, buried with him in baptism, raised up with him through faith. And then, of course, one of the favorites for me is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul, you, you, he identifies with Christ. He's unionized with him at the cross. He's unionized with him in the actual at working out of his life. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh when I go to the store, when I go to bed, when I wake up, when I read, when I go out to dinner, when I do all of these things, the life I'm living now in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. I'm living in reliance on him. Why? Because he loved me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. That's the initial woo. That's the initial sweep. Sweep me off my feet, Lord. While I'm a dead, rotten, disgusting sinner who's your enemy, you've swept me off my feet. You've changed me. Why? Because you love me. Why would you love me? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'll say that to my wife. Like, what did you, how did you end up with me? I feel bad for her, you know, pray for her. I really do. I'm like, you know, and I'm getting older and uglier, even worse, you know. It's so, it's like, get, you know what I mean? Jesus loved us in our ugliest phase of our lives, all right? And he saved us. And when he did that, he unified us with himself. And that can never be broken. And so if you never have been unified with Christ, then you should take these warnings very serious and very carefully. If you are unified with Christ, then you need to do everything you possibly can to do what the author says here. He says, hold fast the beginning of your assurance till the end. See, that's the most positive verse in this passage and the most important one. 
Because all of this stuff tells you right here, you are partakers of Christ. You're unified with Christ. He doesn't just stop there. If you hold fast, your assurance, and that assurance came in the beginning, right? It came in the beginning. When we first became saved, nobody could unsave you, could they? You were so sure. You knew. Maybe you had a little doubt here and there, but you knew that God had opened your eyes so much so that there was nothing you could do to not be sure. Maybe it wasn't at the very beginning. Maybe it was a little after the beginning. Whatever the case is, it's that hope that the picture here is that when you first have been impacted, you grab hold of it and you hold on all the way to the end, to the whole life. Because what happened? The people of Israel in the wilderness didn't do that, did they? They didn't hold on. And so holding on is tough. I was looking into this because <clears throat> I was watching this thing about they do these dead hangs now. People hang on to chin bars or whatever to see how long they can do it. And I was like, I could do that for, you know, because I see it in the movies. You know, people fall and they hang forever and then they lift themselves up and they do all this stuff. I could do that. I can't even hold myself for more than like eight seconds. And I'm just like, right? And then I looked it up and it says intermediate 20 to 30 seconds, beginner 10 and advanced 45 seconds. And the reason why is it because of any strength. It's hanging. My wrists and my fingers are weak. Okay. And so Jesus is telling us here through this scripture that he wants us to be like these people that are dead hang, right? If you knew you had a dead hang for 60 seconds, what would you do? You would practice and you would do everything you could to strengthen that grip. And the beautiful thing here is that this grip gets strengthened the more you're unified with Christ. You'll become stronger and stronger and stronger. And the best thing about it all is that Jesus is with you through that. It's not that he leaves you hanging there for nothing. He is alongside of you, giving you what you need to strengthen those hands. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to make everybody super strong so that they can just do it, because that's not our God. Our God is intimate with us and wants to be there with us and teach us and, and coddle us through this. And so that's what we have to do. So we have to go back and remember when we first believed. We have to hold on and strengthen that union. And it comes by faith and by patience. It's Hebrews 6, 11 to 12. If we desire, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That patience word, we don't like that. Now, I mentioned here that there's these three rhetorical questions here at the end, which get, drives home even more of an urgency because the, the writer here goes and basically gets to the point. He goes, he's like, listen, these people that didn't have faith and had an unbelieving heart, they died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness because God was angry with them. And what they're referring to is not just all of them that, you know, didn't believe God 20 years old and, and older, didn't make it into the promised land. That was part of it. But what they're really talking about, because it says here, he says they were angry with him for 40, he was angry for 40 years. But then it says, was it not those with those who sinned 
whose body fell in the wilderness. So here he brings it back down now to a specific sin, which he's referring back to in Numbers 14. Do you guys remember when Israel was about to go into the land of promise and God sent them in, hey, take somebody from every tribe and go in, and they all got scared when they saw the, uh, the sons of Anak, the sons of the Nephilim, the giants of the land. And they all came back and said, I'm not going back in there. There's no way. And they whined and they complained and they turned the whole camp into miserable, faithless complainers. And so God said, I'm going to wipe them all out. And uh, Moses pleaded with them and, and pleaded with God. God didn't wipe them out, but you know what they did the next day? They said, you know, what do we do? We, we, we made a mess. Let's go up anyway. Well, we, we've changed our mind. We're going to go into the land. We're going to conquer these people. And Moses said, you're nuts. Don't do that. God is not going to be with you. And so they went up and their bodies fell. They got wiped out, okay, by the people of the land. They took, the Canaanites took them and wiped them out. And so that's another scary warning about being too late. I have to say that. I don't know I don't know how that works out with all this, but I do know God put it here for a reason. And I do know that there's a day that God says, I've given you all these chances. I've given you all this stuff. I've given you all this time to take hold of that. And again, it's not like I'm doing all this and you're still being a bad boy. No, he's saying, I want you to believe in me. When I tell you to go conquer the land, go conquer the land. When I tell you I'm going to feed you, I'm going to feed you. When I tell you I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of you. I want you to trust me. And that's my love language, God says. Trust. That's his love language. Now, of course, we do know that there were two people who were saved. And who was that? Joshua and Caleb. They were the ones that came back with the good report. They were the faithful ones. If you read about Joshua and Caleb... They were not only faithful to God in the beginning. Joshua was one of the first ones, to, the first leaders of that army. He fought and led the first battle against the Amalekites, when, and, he, and, and he won. And he was faithful to Moses ever since through the whole 40 years. And so was Caleb. The whole 40 years, they were faithful, and they hung on. And I believe that represents what God wants us to do as the church. So hold on to your assurance there's so many scriptures here that I could go through, but I picked one. I think is one of the most, oh, two. I thought it's really cool. First, first is Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. So this, what, what's going on, what we talked about, is not going to change. This is how God wants you to be. It's not going to change the requirements. And Jesus also says in John 6, 37, and 40 and 44, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. These are definitive statements here. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So I don't want anyone here to think, oh, I must not be that person because my life is messed up. Or I must, be, I must not be that person because, you know what, God's presence hasn't been around or I've been drifting spiritually. Jesus says, look, come to me. It's a guarantee of assurance. He will not cast you out. So now the ball's in your court. Are you coming to him or are you sitting there making excuses saying, I'm not, but when this happens, I don't know about this. What about that? You don't need to have all the answers. Come to Christ. And he says that all the father has given, he'll, none of them will ever perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. 
And so this is something that is so critically important to do. To break it down even simpler, and then I'll close with this, uh, Martin Luther's quote, when somebody asked him about being saved, he said, there's no way when I look at myself that I could look at myself and say, I'm saved. It's impossible. He said, but yet after I look at myself, I look at the cross and then I say, there's no way that I cannot possibly be saved. There's a, this is a definite when I look at that bloody cross. And so if you want the ultimate assurance, I believe you have to do the same thing. You have to keep your eyes on the cross because if there's nothing, <laughs> nothing if that doesn't make you assured on the bloody death of, of our crucified savior, who was, was an innocent sacrificial lamb so that you could be saved and that God could take the kingdom rightfully back and establish his kingdom here firmly to be revealed in the end time, to be exactly what it is, is as we will be revealed. He did all of that at the cross. So how much more is he not going to save you when you come to him? So forget about losing your salvation. Focus on the assurance that you have by holding firm to Christ. And that's not a work. It's, a, it's in Christ's own words, it's, it's, it's an easy yoke. Okay? It's a, it's a light burden. So I encourage you to do that today. I encourage you to use the faith that he has given you right now. Grab hold of him and hang on to your very last breath. Amen.